So we're going to continue in our journey here of understanding the Bible, and in your bulletin you have a sheet that can help you with notes, and kind of in a general way, there's not a lot of direction there for you, but I'm leaving it up to you as far as interpreting your own notes and what you need to put in there if you need to. But um, this is going to be a little more of an application time uh, for our, our gathering together, but, uh, but I trust it will, it will be uh, inspirational still as the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart. Now, do you realize that how much Paul, the Apostle Paul, went through? And he was in prison frequently. He was flogged severely, and he was exposed to death over and over. He received 40 lashes minus one five times. Three times he was beaten with rods, and he was pelted with stones, and he was shipwrecked three times as well. You'd think you'd had a bad day? <laughs> think of Paul. Night and day he spent in the open sea, uh, uh, night and day, and in danger from rivers, bandits, fellow Jews and Gentiles. He was in danger in the city, in the country. He was in danger at sea, and he was in danger with false believers. You got all this going on for Paul, and you kind of wonder, if you were in ministry like Paul, you're thinking, what am I doing that's causing all this to happen? How come I'm not successful as a minister in being able to help people know about God? And he's gone without sleep. He's starved. He's thirsted. <clears throat> he was cold and naked. And uh, daily, he, was, he had a stressful concern for all the churches. <laughs> it almost sounds like a pastoral position and uh, what goes on sometimes. Not the flogging, I guess, or the beating with rods and stuff like that. <laughs> But, you know, maybe there will come a day. I don't know. <clears throat> but anyway. But Paul has gone through a lot, a whole bunch. And while in prison, he writes an encouraging and helpful letter to a young pastor named Timothy. And in Paul's second letter to Timothy, we find this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, the Greek word there for the phrase, do your best, is rendered as make every effort, endure, labor, be diligent, to exert oneself, to, to use speed and make haste. All those things come under the phrase of do your best. And so a question would probably pop up in your mind, it pops up in mine, are we making every effort? Are we laboring? Are we being diligent? Are we exerting ourselves so that we can handle the word of truth correctly? Are we doing that? What grade would you give yourself in handling the word of truth, by the way? Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being greatest, 1 being not so great. What would you grade yourself? in handling the word of truth correctly. And if you were to present yourself to God at this very moment, displaying before Him how you have correctly handled the word of truth, would you or would you not be ashamed? The Scripture tells us we should not be ashamed as we handle the word of truth correctly. What grade do you think God would give you? On a scale of 1 to 10. And how would you feel if God put your name and your grade up on the screen behind me for everyone to see? 
flashing there, the name, and there's the grave. Next name in the grave. Don't worry, I don't have it up there. But uh, <laughs> I don't know it either. No, no, no. But how would you feel about that? This is why we are doing this series of messages about understanding the Bible. I think we need to be confronted with the fact, do we, do we really understand it? Do we have the tools to understand it? And remember, as a church, one of our core values is biblical faithfulness, the authority of, of God's Word, and, the, and, and how we, we value the Bible. As we've stated in that core value, we value the Bible as God's holy Word and the authority over our lives. So if we value God's Word, we need to handle it correctly. And in order to handle it correctly, uh, we need to read it equipped with some basic principles of hermeneutics that means to explain and to interpret. So we need to be able to handle God's Word correctly. And to do that, we need those tools. And so uh, we go through the series. So if you read the Bible, you are already interpreting it. You already have a hermeneutical theory in mind, as we talked about last Sunday. You cannot read the Bible for long before the question of what does this mean begins forming in your mind. So the issue isn't whether or not we have a basic interpreting framework, because we all do. The issue is whether or not our framework is clear or unclear, if it's adequate or inadequate or correct or incorrect. And the question is, is our framework our way of interpreting the Bible, our hermeneutical process leading towards the truth of God's Word, or is it leading further away from it? And we need, if it's further away, we need to correct that. And last Sunday, we looked at one of the foundational principles of hermeneutics, and that was AIM, um, Author's Intended Meeting. And the AIM must be our AIM, as we talked about, the Author's Intended Meeting, um, we shouldn't be asking, what does the Scripture mean to me? Uh, we should be asking, what was the author's intended meaning? What was the author talking about here? What was the meaning there? And what we see in the Bible with our own lenses of culture, our own lenses of background and, and experiences, needs to be tempered by the author's intended meaning. And when we look at a passage in the Bible, our goal is to figure out the author's intended meaning. What, what did Paul mean in, in these verses? What did Peter mean? What did Moses mean? What did Isaiah mean when he wrote these, these verses? And sometimes people ask the wrong question in studying the Bible, and it, it really shouldn't be the, the first question at all, and it's not a correct question to ask, is that what does this text mean to me? Or what does this text mean to you? It does not matter <laughs> what it means to you or me. It means it, it matters what it means to the author. What did the author mean in this portion of Scripture? So the question should be, what did the author mean when he wrote this passage? And so when you read Scripture and you study it, that should be the first question that comes to your mind and, and be ready to go from there. And there's a difference between meaning and application, as we talked about last Sunday. Meaning is singular, and it's tied to the text. There's only one meaning. There is, there's one meaning, one interpretation, but how we live out the text, how we apply it, then that is varied. There are many ways to be able to do that. So how you live out Scripture may be very different from how others would apply it. And there are certain things that we don't have the right to simply interpret what they mean to us, and the Bible is one of those things. We don't have the right to make the Bible mean whatever is convenient, uh, whatever is comfortable to us, whatever is is culturally acceptable at the time. 
the Bible is the Bible, and we need to be careful in um, interpreting that. And God's Word isn't here to conform to our culture or, or to our conveniences or to our, our comfort. God's Word is here to transform those things in our lives. So we, we put our lives up against what the Bible says, and we don't try to change the Bible to what our lives are, which happens so many times. But we try, to, we try to conform our lives to what the Bible says and allow the Bible to transform our minds and our lives. So the other foundational principle I didn't get to last Sunday <clears throat> is then always respect the king. Always respect the king. Now, if you and I are ever going to be good Bible students, we must both learn and embrace the following mantra, context is king. That should be what we should be looking at all the time. <clears throat> context is king. And as we do, then our Bible studies and our time in God's word becomes even more rich. And so as we look at this and realize that context is king is what we should be living by as we look at God's Word, we, 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 uh, we will get deeper into God's Word and understand it better. Now, has something you've, you've said or ever been taken out of context? You said something and then others repeat it and, and you go, well, no, no, that's not what I meant. That's not what I, maybe it was by your spouse, maybe it's by your kids. Maybe it's uh, your parents or your friends or maybe your boss or coworker. <clears throat> we can be taken out of context sometimes, and it kind of can get a little confusing. Have you ever taken something that someone said either verbally or, or through nonverbal cues out of context? You, you jump to a conclusion about something, and then they, they said, no, 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 that's not what I meant, and there's some clarification that needs to happen. Well, several, several years back, a company called AmeriQuest, put together uh, a funny series of, of commercials. And uh, as uh, Sydney gets ready to go up there, these are commercials that I think can help us get a grasp of things being taken out of context. Context is king. And we need to realize that when we go through situations, um, sometimes we can be taken out of context and uh, maybe... Situations like that happen. But context is king, and it is essential in understanding situations and what people are saying. Context matters in life and in all forms of communication, and it most definitely matters in interpreting the Bible. In fact, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, like we have already heard, context is king, and because context is king, that means that it must always rule over our understanding of any text, or any passage of Scripture. We make more interpreting errors by pulling passages out of their context than all other kinds of errors combined. So what is context? How do we find this type of thing? The context of a passage are the words and the Scriptures that immediately surround that passage. It's in the context of that verse. And the verse is surrounded by other verses, which are surrounded by chapters, which are, again, surrounded by the books of the Bible. And so as you look at that verse, you look at the verses around it to get the context of where that verse is all about. So, so many times, one verse is taken out of that passage, and then they, they, it's used for so many different things, when it wasn't really intended by the author to be used in that way. So we need to be, be very careful in making sure that we 
keep in context those things. So when we take a verse out of its God-inspired context, we really, we miss out on the power, the truth, and spiritual authority of what is being said. It might have a pretty good truth there. Maybe the truth might be similar, close to what that verse is about. But when we take it, that verse out of context, we will always miss out on that power and the truth and the spiritual authority, what God has intended. So let's get into some application. We're going to spend some time looking at some well-known passages that you have before you in, in your notes there. Been the frequent victim of being taken out of their context. And you know, if, if you sit there and you go, whoops, and you find yourself guilty of that, you're not alone. I found myself as well, too, taking some of these verses out of context as well. It's something, I, you know, we all need to learn and move on from, learn and, and make sure that uh, that doesn't happen again. Now, the first passage of Scripture that usually falls victim to being taken out of context is Matthew 18, verse 20. It says, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now, have you ever heard it quoted and used this way at all? Uh, you, I know there are not many people here tonight for prayer time or for a Bible study, but remember, wherever two or three are gathered, there God is with us too. Jesus is right there with us. Is that really what Jesus is teaching in this portion of Scripture? Is is he teaching that he is only with us when two or three are gathered? What about the moments that you're in prayer alone? Is Jesus with you or not? As there are two or three people there, you better grab someone else to come along with you so that Jesus is there, I guess, too. If this is true, what does that mean when you are all alone? It kind of gives a different idea, connotation. Does it mean that God is not there? Uh, so what is the context of this verse? So that's what we need to look at. So you take that verse and you go, okay, what's around this portion of Scripture? The answer to the question will help us uncover the true meaning of Matthew 18, verse 20. So let's look at the context by looking at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 and get a good context of what's going on here. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That last phrase there in Scripture, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where the Mosaic Law states that for someone to be convicted of any crime, the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So, he continues, he says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two, or, uh, two or th of you are on, on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done by you, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So, do you see the context there going on? What was Jesus, what was he talking about? He'd been talking about something that is very difficult to do. Uh, something that we probably don't like to do, and that's confronting people and, and, and with church discipline, basically. Confronting believers in the way of, you know, I see the sin in a person's life, we need to confront them. 
I need to go talk to them because that's what Matthew 18 talks about. And within the church as well, too, that happens. So, yay, confrontation. Wahoo. Uh, this is what the chapters, that portion of Scripture is about. And so the meaning here, Jesus is saying that if two or three believers come to a decision that another is in sin, they have Jesus' legal authority to carry out discipline on him, even leading to excommunication. So rather than justifying a small worship service, this text is a legal ordinance for carrying out one of the most neglected practices of the modern church, and that's the discipline of wayward members. The discipline as far as holding them accountable. So whenever Jesus' followers take on this difficult task of church discipline, whenever two or three gathered to protect His name, gathered to protect His person, His church, Jesus backs them and He shows up in a special way. So the meaning behind this, again, when confronting wayward members of the church, that when there are two or three people gathered there, Jesus will be there as well. He will back you up. A little different context than sometimes what we use with this verse. And so um, context is king. You need to keep that in mind. Philippians 4.13, here's another verse that has suffered much and has been taken out of context very often. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. That's a great truth, a great verse. Does this mean, though, that Jesus Christ can, can do anything through me? Is it teaching that through Christ I can, I can teach this class that I don't even know how to teach? Like, I, being a math person, I can teach English? No, Anthony's the one who does the social studies and everything else, but uh, I wouldn't be able to do what Anthony does there, but... Does that mean I can do something like that? Well, maybe not without training, but maybe I can earn a degree. Jesus can help me earn some kind of degree, or maybe Jesus can help me get that A on that test, or maybe Jesus can help me climb that mountain one more time, South Sister. Woohoo, here we go. Or maybe Jesus can help me run that mile under four minutes. Are you kidding me? Under four minutes, me. Or maybe Jesus can help me bench press 350 pounds. I don't know about that. Maybe play for the Miami Dolphins football team. Lord knows they need someone to help them out, or maybe play for the Portland Trailblazers uh, as a center, but uh, <laughs> a little short on one end. Um, is this text really saying that I can do anything? Because whatever I want to do, Jesus will give me the power to do it. Uh, that's taking that verse out of context. <laughs> if you look at the context of that verse, you will see something here that's a little different. Philippians 4 if you look at verses 10 through 14, within context of this verse 13. And remember, Paul is in prison while writing these words. So keep that in context as well, too. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. So what is the context? Paul's ongoing and unyielding contentment, even in the face of tremendous trouble and hardship. In the context of Scripture, Paul basically is saying, yeah, it is tough, 
but I can endure. I can make it through. I can stand up under anything and everything and still be content as long as I have Jesus. Jesus who has and will continue to give me the strength, will continue to allow me to endure even in the midst of most violent of storms. So that's the secret of contentment. So the true meaning here in this, this verse uh, of uh, Philippians 4.13, the contextual meaning becomes so much more powerful when, when viewed in this way. Our contentment does not, does not need to depend on our outward circumstances being perfect around us, but rather on having a deep personal relationship with Jesus. That's where contentment is. Jesus is the secret to contentment. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. And He may not take away the storm, but He will be the peace within the storm. He will be the contentment within the storm. And that's where we need to realize Philippians 4.13. Context is king. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, another text frequently taken out of context. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7, excuse me, verses 7 and 8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So you look at that portion of Scripture, and you want is the meaning of this passage that when people come to Christ, that all of the things of life that they had previously chased so, so hard after, the, the, the money, the houses, the promotions, the, the applause, the worldly success, the popularity, those pleasures, those possessions that when compared to Christ are rubbish, those things. Even, even though that's a pretty very powerful and true statement, is it really what Philippians 3, 7 and 8 is talking about? What this text is really teaching is even more powerful than the truth that money and houses and promotions and all those things when compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ is nothing but garbage. Uh, let's see what context has to say about this. Let's see what uh, Philippians 3, verse 7 and 8 has to say within the context of verses 1 through 9. Look at those verses around it. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. <clears throat> Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who, are, who, who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And remember, there were, there were false teachers in the church in Philippi, and they were trying to put the Jewish laws back upon the people. You need to be doing this and doing that, checklist, make sure you're doing these things. And here, Paul is saying, no, 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 <laughs> this is not what needs to happen. He says, if anyone, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ." What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. For years, Paul had lived believing that righteousness, that being right with God, was something that he had to earn by what he did, trying to earn those things. So for years, Paul was all in for this, on his own effort, trying to measure up, trying to, to earn, trying to deserve and achieve salvation, trying to be right with God, basically. But he, he always knew that he came up short. It, it never really measured up. And sadly, also, too, there are many people who have this same kind of thinking. I got to do, 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 do. I got to earn. I, I, I got to be deserving for the salvation. Being right with God doesn't mean doing, doesn't mean trying, doesn't mean achieving and, and earning. Being right with God means accepting what He's already done for you. So the meaning here becomes even bigger for this verse. Now that Paul has tasted the salvation that comes by grace through faith and is fueled by the unfailing love of God and bought by the blood-stained cross of Christ, he considers all of that past human effort and any additional human effort to earn salvation as rubbish and a waste of time. That's the true meaning behind this verse. You don't have to earn your salvation. You, don't, you consider all those efforts, past and present efforts, as rubbish. Don't have to work at it. Paul has tasted the power and the peace and beauty of living from grace rather than living for grace, and he is never going back. You know, we, we work from our salvation, not for our salvation. Once we're saved, then, then we show those fruits of the Spirit in us, and we develop those and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us in that way. And remember, as a believer, Paul was still all in. He continued in that. Rather than being motivated to earn, he was motivated by love and also gratitude. So, context. Context is king. It must always rule over our understanding of the text. So, the next portion of Scripture, have you ever heard the expression, God will not give you more than you can handle? Have you heard that? You wonder where that may have come from? And maybe, is it, is it true? You know, this is a portion of Scripture that I've looked at, and I've kind of I've made the mistake of taking this thing out of context. Well, here's where that belief and saying comes from. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So, if you look there, the, the word translated tempted comes from a, a Greek word that carries the meanings of trial and testing as well as temptation. And so you can view this verse as more like maybe no trial has overtaken you or no testing has overtaken you. But how do we know which meaning is best? That's where context comes in. What does, what does the king have to say about this? The context is king. What does the king have to say about this? It helps in discovering the meaning of words as well. So if you ever struggle with that at times, what does this word mean? What, what is this phrase? Look at the context of Scripture within that as well. 
So let's look at the context of 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10, verses 6 through 13. And actually, I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you read it on your own. Um, let me just give a little summary of this real quick. Um, God's people in the past did some bad things, and they messed up, they sinned, and God brought punishment upon them. They committed sexual immorality, and 23,000 died. They tested God and were killed by snakes. They grumbled and were killed by an angel. All these things were going on, and were not so great. And these things happened to them to warn all of us, warn these, the other guys, uh, uh, those who are in 1 Corinthians, in, in the Corinthian church. They had fallen into the sin because they had given in to the temptation. And so the lesson there was trying to be given to the church there. And so the awesome promise is found in that verse, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So the meaning under this verse of uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you know, God has limited how deeply we can be tempted. And the word tempted, we can figure out that that's the best meaning in this from the context. Because God knows there are some temptations that some of us have trouble overcoming. He knows what you can handle, right? He has given us an escape hatch that allows us to endure the temptation. So God is protecting us because He loves us so much. So the reality is, though, that God may give you more than you can handle. He may. But He will never give you more than He can handle. So keep that in mind. God can be trusted. This should lead us to our knees in dependency upon God. Drive us to our knees and just rely upon Him. All right, one more verse uh, you may have heard before and is a frequent victim of being taken out of context. Uh, you may have seen it printed on even, even, evangelistic, evangelistic uh, tracts and, and uh, other things that you may even use it in sharing Christ with, with people as well. But it's uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Okay, um, guilty. I've used this verse a number of times. But what does this verse really mean? What is Jesus saying in these words? Is this verse talking about a lost person asking Jesus for the first time to come into his, his or her life? For salvation? Many times this verse has been used in that way. But remember that our opinion is not the king. <laughs> context is. So when we, when we let context rule over this verse, we find that it has a different, more powerful meaning. Take a look at this verse. Uh, when we look, look at this here. And, when we, and remember, when we take a, a verse out of its God-inspired context, we lose the power, the truth, and spiritual authority of what is being said. Keep that in mind. So... In this context, verses 14 through 21, let's look at this real quick. It says, To the angel, and this is a letter given to the, uh, the church of Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one, of, one, or, uh, one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, Neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and, and uh, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So what is the context here? Jesus is, is talking to believers at the church in Laodicea who are not living as they should. They were not living for God. They had taken pride in their wealth, taken pride in the way of life as well. And Jesus is angry with them and calls them to repent. And so what is the awesome promise Jesus is giving here? What is the meaning from this, this verse? Even when we're lukewarm, even when we sin, even when we aren't living for Him, Jesus is just waiting outside of the door, waiting for us to repent. And Jesus is ready to come in once that happens to renew and revive that relationship. For, for, for the believers who mess up, who sin, who get it wrong, Jesus is waiting on the other side of the door for those believers who repent of their ways and return to their first love, to open the door to Jesus and His forgiveness. When we take a verse out of its God-inspired context, we lose the power, the truth, and spiritual authority of what is being said. It's speaking to believers that we come back to, to Jesus and we repent. So you can use that verse, I guess, for, for first-time converts if you want, but really the context is right there for our believers. Context is critical for understanding the Bible. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And as they do, a uh, few more things I just want to share with you as they get themselves ready. But where, wherever you are, even if you are all alone, remember, God is with you. You don't need two or more, three people there. God is with you. And whatever you're doing or whatever you're going through, you can endure and stand up against anything, not on your own strength, but through the strength of Jesus who can carry you. And also realize, too, your salvation doesn't depend on what you do or don't do. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works. We work from our salvation, not for our salvation. And sometimes, sometimes God will give you more than you can handle. But He won't give you more than He can handle so that you'll run to Him, depend upon Him. So if you're a Christian and you're being tempted, realize that you're being protected in that temptation as well. Maybe you're living lukewarm. And wonder what you need to do. And Jesus tells us that we just need to repent and He'll come in, have a meal with us, and everything will be fine. He'll bring us back in. That's the God that we serve. And this is His Word that He gave us to build us up and to make us stronger. That's why we need to correctly handle the Word of Truth, because that's where we find life. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the Word of Truth. God has spoken to you in some way, and you need to come and pray. The altar is open if you want to come and pray. But again, um, just be obedient to how the Holy Spirit's leading you in this time together.